Jono. Very far away, front row today. <clears throat> Fantastic! It is. Uh, it's awesome to be back. Uh, my wife and I have been travelling uh, in Tasmania with a couple of friends, some of you guys, and uh, and so we actually missed church the last couple of weeks. And uh, even though travelling is fun and holidays are good, and it's good to be with friends and get some time off, uh, it's also been. It's also nice to really come back to church and to be with you guys. And so. Um, yeah, it's just awesome to be here. Uh, <clears throat> my name is Jonathan, for those of you who may not have met me. Uh, if you have not, uh, come and say good day to me uh, after the service, and uh, maybe we can get to know each other a little bit better. Uh, I'm not a pastor here. I get to preach uh, every once in a while, and uh, so it is my privilege uh, to come and deliver God's word uh, to you this morning. Uh, if you've ever been to ad- admitted into hospital in the past 20 or so years, Uh, you'll probably get used to having to answer to your name and your date of birth and perhaps the procedure that you're going to go through. Uh, There's this standard protocol that's been put in place that means that every nurse and every doctor who attends to you needs to ask you for those things so that they can verify your identity. I've been through it a few times, and uh, even if the same nurse you've seen, you know, maybe 20 times in the past couple of days, they'll keep asking you your name and your date of birth. Uh, Earlier this year, there was actually a case where a man in Chicago had facial injuries and he was incorrectly identified by hospital staff. Uh, Let me read to you a portion of the news article. It says, When the sisters saw the man in the hospital, they continually and repeatedly expressed their serious doubts that he was actually their brother, the lawsuit said. But hospital staff told them repeatedly that they just didn't recognize him because of his facial injuries and because they were struggling to come to terms with a difficult situation. The hospital told them that he needed to be removed from life support. The sisters agreed, and the man they believed to be their brother was taken off life support. Now, you can see why it's crucial that hospitals get a person's identity correct. Uh, In this case, the mistake was fatal. For us, as human beings, the same is applicable to us. It is crucial and important that we know our identity As Christians, it's imperative that we understand who we are in Christ, that we can answer confidently this question, who am I? Who has God made me to be? What is my identity? Uh, The series that we've started uh, this December, A Christmas Story, and so far we've looked at being repaired and reconciled, sets out to ultimately answer this question. Jesus came to earth to repair our brokenness and to reconcile us back to God. Have you ever been at a park or a beach and perhaps joined your friends who are playing a team sport, perhaps soccer or frisbee or some such sport? Uh, And they're already playing and so you decide to join in and and so you step onto the field. Uh, The first question that you need answered is, which team am I on? Which goal am I going for? Who am I trying to help win and who am I trying to defend against? Who am I in this battle of sports ball? Imagine that you're playing a game of rugby, not knowing which which team you're on. You could be the most skilled rugby player of all time. You could be Joe Helg. But without knowing which team you're on, you'd be utterly confused and purposeless. 
How much more, then, is it important that you know your identity in life? How much more important is that you understand who you are in Christ and the reason for which you were created? Knowing who you are are is the key to understanding your life's meaning, your life's purpose, and your life's value. Who you are will determine how you should live and what you should ultimately do with your life. Today we're going to look at another aspect of the Christmas story and unravel another part of the identity that Christ has given us. It's found in another R-E word, and that word today is redemption. Because Jesus has redeemed us, and because he is our redeemer, that makes us his redeemed people. We are the redeemed people of God. Now, like me, you might uh, initially wonder, what is the difference between redemption and salvation? Aren't they just the same thing? Aren't they just different words? Isn't reconciliation another word for just the same thing? Well, in some sense, you are correct. Uh, These words do describe, however, different different aspects of salvation. Uh, Last week, Joe shared about reconciliation, and he gave the definition as this. Reconciliation is the reestablishment of friendly relations. Redemption, however, is a more specific term than salvation, and ultimately it describes how these friendly relations are reestablished. We are not just saved by Jesus, we are redeemed by Jesus. Uh, if this Christmas you are fortunate enough to receive a gift voucher, uh, then you'll be able to redeem that voucher for a good or service from that company. To redeem something is to exchange something for payment, in this case a gift voucher. Biblically, the term redemption refers to the price paid to purchase a slave. In ancient times, it was normal to own, trade, and purchase people as slaves. Perhaps you owed a debt that you couldn't repay. You would be legally obliged to pay off your debt by becoming someone's slave. Perhaps you were a casualty of war and became a slave of the invading people's army. Or maybe you were simply born into slavery. As a slave, you were the property of your owner. In those days, there was only really one way that you could be freed from your slavery. Someone would need to purchase you and set you free. This process is known as redemption. It's a price that's needed to be paid in exchange for a slave's freedom. Redemption explains how God reconciled and saved us. He paid the ultimate price for our freedom. There are two things today that I want us to understand about redemption. Firstly, what we are redeemed from, and secondly, what we are redeemed by. What we are redeemed from and what we are redeemed by. That's the first part of today's sermon. And the second part are two suggestions on how we should live as God's redeemed people. The first is that we are redeemed to live holy and pure lives, and the second is that we are redeemed to live radically for God. In today's day and age, slavery is generally considered a barbaric and ugly ugly practice. Of course, life in ancient times was quite different to how it is now. Back then, slavery was simply a way of life and culturally a norm, more akin to having a maid or servant. There were, of course, harsh and unfair masters, as well as well-respected ones and kind ones. It would probably be unfair to compare slaves in biblical times to, say, the enslavement of African-Americans in the 17th and 18th centuries. Nonetheless, Israelite slaves in the Bible were granted special provisions in the law for their welfare, unlike was normally practiced by other pagan nations. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 15, a slave was required to be set free after serving for six years, 
a reminder of the way that God had redeemed them from their slavery in Egypt. In Leviticus 25, relatives of a person facing slavery were required by law to redeem them where possible. On top of that, all debts were to be cancelled and all slaves would be set free in the year of Jubilee, every seven by seven years. These provisions emulated the grace and mercy of God to slaves and would also serve as reminders of the love of God in redeeming Israel from their slavery in Egypt. Deuteronomy 15, 12 to 15 says this, If any of your people, Hebrew men or women, sell themselves to you and serve you six years, in the seventh year you must let them go free. And when you release them, do not send them away empty-handed. Supply them liberally from your flock, your threshing floor and your winepress. Give to them as the Lord your God has blessed you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. That is why I give you this command today. Before we begin, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come and that we can hear from you. We thank you that you've given us your word, your word that is rich and explains to us your great love for us and the way in which you have redeemed us. Father, I pray today that you would help us to truly understand who you've made us to be through your son, Jesus. And I pray that this truth would reside in our hearts, that it would shape how we live and the decisions that we make. Father, I pray that it would cause us to glorify you in everything that we do. Father, for those, uh, for those areas of our lives where we are not glorifying you, Father, I pray that you would challenge us. You would help us to bring them in line with, with your will. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing we need to know is what we are redeemed from, and that is we are redeemed from our slavery to sin. Sin is anything that I do, say, or think that goes against God. God's law can be summed up in two commandments, to love God and to love others. Anything that I do that is not motivated by a love for God or a love for others is sin. I wonder if you can think of anything that you've done this week or perhaps even this morning that was not motivated by a love for God or for others. The problem with sin is that it's widespread in nature. It's not something that only murderers and rapists are guilty of, as though only the worst of the worst commit sin. It's something that affects every single one of us, irrespective of how good or pure you think you might be. Last week, as I mentioned, I was holidaying in Tasmania with Kelvin Vick, Aaron Amanda, and their two-year-old Joshi. Uh, From my experience and as far as kids go, Josh is a pretty well-behaved kid. But you can imagine how travelling with a two-year-old for nine days on long car trips can bring out, let's say, some special episodes. There's one occasion in the car where it quickly became apparent that Joshy had made good use of his nappy. Aaron asked him, Joshy, did you go (laughs) bomb-bomb? Bomb-bomb obviously meaning, well, you know what bomb-bomb means. We were all there in the car, and there was no denying it. Joshy had certainly gone bonbon. How would this sweet, innocent child reply to his daddy? And of course, with the most innocent face that you've ever seen, Joshy replied, no, daddy. (laughs) He straight up lied about it. Now, I know Aaron and Amanda pretty well, and they may not be perfect parents, but I'm pretty sure that they did not teach Joshy how to lie. In fact, I know that they've taught him to tell the truth. So where did little Joshy get it from? How did he know how to lie? Well, 
The answer is he was born that way. In fact, we're all born with an inherently sinful nature. Sin, selfishness, and rejection of God's authority is inherent to our human nature. Ever since Adam and Eve failed in the Garden of Eden, humanity has been constantly struggling with this condition, whether young or old. The Bible tells us that none are righteous and that all have fallen short of the glory of God. And it's not something that we can simply deal with. It's a heart condition that every human being suffers from, which requires more than a dangerous heart transplant to fix. The punishment for our sin is actually that we get exactly what our sinful nature wants. It's an eternity without God. But since God is love, and since he is the source of all that is good, eternity without him, that's ultimately hell and endless suffering. It's a permanent separation from the creator of all that is good and right. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. We are slaves to this sin that we've committed against him. Our sin condemns us to a godless eternity. Our sinful nature means that we can neither make ourselves right before him, nor can we overcome our sin and live righteously of our own accord. This is what God is ultimately redeeming us from. You see, God has purchased for us our freedom from slavery to sin. He exchanged the perfect life of his own son, Jesus, for our broken ones. Paul puts it like this in Galatians 3, 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. The curse of the law that Paul is referring to is the punishment that comes from breaking God's laws. Christ has redeemed us from this punishment because he was cursed as he hung on the cross for us. And as a result, everyone now has an opportunity by faith to come back into a right relationship with him and live by the promised Holy Spirit. 1 Peter 18 tells us that we are redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to us from our ancestors. It says this, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. The empty way of life that Peter speaks about is a reference to the hopelessness and futility of our lives without God. It was handed down to us from our ancestors because we've inherited that same sinful nature throughout all generations from the first Adam. So the first thing that we need to know today is that we are redeemed from our slavery to sin. The next question we need to answer is what price was paid for our redemption? Psalm 49 makes it clear that there is no payment that man can give for their life. It says this, No one can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for them. The ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough, so that they should live on forever and not see decay. How then is our redemption even possible? How can the psalmist say later on in verse 15, But God will redeem me from the realm of the dead. He will surely take me to himself. Well, actually, the answer we've already read in 1 Peter 18 and 19. I'm going to read it just one more time. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. 
You see, there is no earthly payment. No amount of silver nor gold are worth anything to God. It is only the precious blood of Jesus that can wash away our sin. Why did God require Jesus' death as payment for our sin? Why did his blood need to be shed on the cross? Why couldn't God just be satisfied with animal sacrifices or overlook our sin? Well, God could not overlook our sin, and he could not accept a lesser payment for our sin because he is perfectly holy and just. 1 Timothy 6, 15 to 16 describes God in this way. Which God will bring about in his own time, God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honour and might forever. Amen. In the time of Exodus, Moses is talking with God on top of Mount Sinai, where he would carve the Ten Commandments in stone. Moses wants to know that God will be with him, and so he requests to see God's glory. And God responds with this in Exodus 33, 19 and 20. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. So God goes on to hide Moses in the cleft of the rock as he passes by. Moses gets just a small glimpse of God's back. That's how holy God is. He lives in unapproachable light. And if we were to see his face, we would immediately die because of our sinfulness. God the Father in all his glory cannot tolerate our sin. His holiness and his righteousness is such that if we were to stand in his presence, we would immediately be consumed by his wrath. Unless we have Jesus as our mediator, as our go-between, we cannot hope to know God or to have relationship with him. 1 Timothy 2.5 says it like this, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. Only Jesus' blood could atone for our sins because only Jesus was perfect. He is the sacrificial lamb without blemish or defect. Jesus alone could enter heaven on his own merit and live and stand before God. Jesus was the only man who never sinned, who lived in perfect obedience to the will of God and loved God with all his heart, soul, strength and mind 100% of the time. He's the only man who was not subject to the curse of the law because he never once broke it. And it's for this reason that only Jesus' death was an acceptable substitute for the wages of our sin. Jesus, the Son of God, who became God incarnate, that is, God in the flesh. When God created man, he never intended for anyone to die. In fact, his his desire was that all would live in perfect harmony with him forever. It was only because of Adam's first sin that death entered the world. And in a cruel irony, Jesus, the wonderful counsellor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, was born ultimately to die. Mark 10:45 For even the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Born as a baby in a lowly manger, Jesus entered the world so that he could redeem us from our sin through the shedding of his precious blood on the cross. So now that we know that we are redeemed from our sin and that we are redeemed by the blood of Christ, how should we live? 
How do we respond to what God has done for us? How does this knowledge that Christ is our Redeemer impact us? And may I suggest two things. <clears throat> the first is this. We are redeemed to live holy and pure lives. Because Christ has set us free from sin, we are now capable of living holy and pure. Paul explains this in his letter to the Romans in chapter 6. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Paul explains that when we come to faith in Christ, we are crucifying our old self and the sinful nature that we've inherited. We've died to that former self, and sin no longer is our master. We are now set free from sin. He goes one step further and tells us that not only have we died to sin, but we now made alive to, to God in Christ. In verses 22 and 23 of the same chapter, But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you're here today and you've made a decision to follow Jesus and made him the Lord of your life, then you can know with confidence that you've been transformed from the inside out. You are now a slave to God, and your end result is holiness. Instead of earning the wages of sin, which is death, you have now received the gift of eternal life. You have been empowered by the Holy Spirit to live holy and righteous. You no longer have to continually fall to sin. In his letter to Titus, Paul puts it like this, in chapter 2, 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. As we experience the grace of God in saving us, we'll become more sensitive to the Spirit within us, and he'll teach us what is right. He'll give us greater self-control and a supernatural ability to say no to sin and temptation. He'll dampen our desire to do evil and even make us eager to do what is good instead. If we continue to walk closely with him, he'll make us more and more like his son, pure in every way. <clears throat> I made a decision to follow Jesus back when I was in high school, roughly 18 years ago now. Uh, it's only recently occurred to me that I've been a Christian uh, for longer than I've actually been a non-Christian now. Uh, those few years in senior high and university for me were certainly tumultuous ones. Uh, in high school, I picked up a lot of bad habits. I really wanted to fit in with my friends and generally just wanted to be seen as a pretty cool guy. And, and so I picked up the habit of swearing and I swore quite a lot. Uh, I remember there were a number of occasions where teachers would even hear me, uh, would overhear me swearing and, and I'd get in trouble. Uh, even as a young Christian in uni, I kept up the habits around particular friends. I find it curious, actually, when some of you might come up to me and, and perhaps this, well, for whatever reason the, the topic came up and you, you say to me that you could never imagine that I used to swear so much. Uh, I guess I cleaned up my act before I came to GCC. <laughs> Uh, thankfully, it's something that God has convicted me about many years ago, and, and he's helped me to say no to. 
I remember one time my friend showed me this stand-up comedian who used to swear in basically every sentence he used. And just trying to be there as his friend, I tried to go along with it, but in the end I just couldn't. The Holy Spirit within me just wanted it to stop. And my sensitivity to him in my life had increased and he'd completely changed my attitudes, my attitude towards this particular sin. I was no longer a slave to the sin of swearing. Uh, I no longer felt compelled to swear to fit in or to use it to express myself in getting a point across. And while I'm still learning to control my tongue in other ways, I, I trust that God is continuing to teach me to say no to ungodliness by his grace. If Jesus is your master, you are no longer a slave to sin. Sin no longer has any control or power over you. Your selfish desires and your sinful nature no longer define who you are. They don't determine how you live, and they don't have to influence the decisions that you make. You have been redeemed by Christ, and you are now united with the one who lives in unapproachable light. When God sees you, he doesn't see the mess of a life that you've made. He just sees the snow-white righteousness of Jesus instead. Since we are new creations in Christ, it's our job to simply be who God has made us. Paul says it like this in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul is saying that my old sinful life has been crucified with Christ. We've been redeemed from that old, empty way of life. It's no longer alive, it's completely dead. It's been superseded, completely replaced by Christ, who now lives in me. Now I live not only for my now I live not for my own fleshly desires, but rather for the Son of God, the Son of God who loves me and demonstrated his love by purchasing my freedom on the cross. <clears throat> we are redeemed to live radically for God's glory. The early Christians exemplified people who understood what it meant to call Christ their Redeemer. They knew what it meant for a slave to have his freedom reinstated. They understood that Christ had redeemed them, had redeemed their life from the pit and the immense cost at which they had been ransomed. They quite literally lived every moment completely for God. Christ alone was their source of satisfaction. They were completely focused on their mission to share Jesus with those who did not know him. They trusted God for all their needs and placed little value in possessions or material things. They had joy in the Lord unspeakable, which could not be taken from them despite their intense persecution and suffering. They demonstrated patient endurance and unwavering faith even when their life was demanded from them. They considered it a privilege to die for their Redeemer. They valued the scriptures and the word of God as though God had personally delivered it to them. Their devotion to prayer and fasting was not a chore nor a ritual, but a necessity born out of an unbridled passion to know God more and a reliance on the Holy Spirit to work in their lives. Their lives were fragrant, unashamed, all-out offerings to their Redeemer. Their lives were poured out for their Saviour. Sometimes I look at these people, the early disciples, the early church, and I compare my own life to them. I too have been redeemed from my sin. I too have had my life ransomed by the precious blood of Christ. I too have been set free from sin and now call upon God as my rock and my redeemer. Why then is it that my life looks so different? 
Why does the word comfort more accurately describe my life over the word, say, radical or countercultural? Why am I more concerned with material things and entertainment than with the souls of my neighbours or strangers that I meet? Why is it that my joy is so dependent on my circumstances, whether I'm sick or whether I'm healthy, whether I've had a good day or bad day? Why do I struggle to find satisfaction in the infinite riches of Christ and yet can spend mindless hours in front of the TV or computer? Why do the daily disciplines of prayer and devotion with God still feel like optional extras as opposed to necessities with which I can't live without? Why do I search for answers in my own strength and worldly alternatives when the God of the universe is eager and ready to listen to me whenever I choose to pray? The only consolation that I can take from asking these questions is that I believe their source is founded in a godly dissatisfaction with the status quo. I wonder perhaps if you can identify with the same sentiment. If you're like me, then God knows that there is a disparity between the faith that we profess and the life that we lead. God is being gracious in making known to us our weaknesses and the ways in which he wants us to to be stretched and to grow. I thank God that he's not finished with us yet and that he's still shaping and molding us to be more and more conformed to the image of his son. My prayer is that he will convict us and reveal to us how we ought to live for his glory radically today. May he transfer what we know intellectually in our minds, in our heads, into our hearts and into our minds. May he create in us desires and convictions that are consistent with being the redeemed people of God. May he bear in us fruit that will last, that the world would know that we are truly his disciples. May he dispel in us our desire to be comfortable and prosperous in this temporary world and replace it with an insatiable passion for his kingdom to come and his will to be done here on earth. May he disturb us to the point that we can no longer live our lives even for one second without relying on him. May he unite us and bind us with his love that when people encounter us, they'll encounter the radical love of God. May our souls long for more of him and for more of his presence with us each and every day. May we thirst and hunger for righteousness that we might be filled. May we walk worthy of the calling he's placed on each of our lives our lives as his redeemed. <clears throat> there was a young boy who enjoyed making things out of wood. He was quite gifted at it, and so he set out to build a small toy boat. He lovingly crafted this boat, and he went to the river near his house to test it out. As he was playing with the boat, the wind picked up and the current of the river grew stronger. Before long, the boat was beyond his reach and carried it down the river out of his sight. For a long time, the boy never knew what would become of his toy. One day, as he was walking down the street, he saw the boat that he had made in a shop window. He entered the shop and told the shopkeeper that he had made that boat and that it ultimately belonged to him. The shopkeeper didn't believe his story. He didn't believe that such a young boy could craft such a well-made boat, and so he said that he could buy it back if he would like. The boy, unhappy with the shopkeeper, but because he loved that boat, he gathered all the money that he could get. He spent it all to buy his little boat back. That's what God has done for us. You see, God created us fearfully and wonderfully. He made us in his own image, and he, and he declared that we are good. He created us as his masterpieces to do good work. But we decided to go on our own way. We gave in to our selfish desires and disobeyed God. We jumped into a river of our own destruction, swimming with the current of the world and enslaved ourselves to the sin that we had committed. 
And even though by right we are God's creation, he couldn't accept us in our fallen state. And so he who lives in, in unapproachable light did the unthinkable, not because of anything that we have done or could ever do, but because he loved us so. He looked at us in that shop window, broken because of our sin, and decided to spend all that he had to buy us back. He purchased our freedom from sin with the precious blood of his own dear son, Jesus. We are now in debt to him our lives twice over, first for creating us, and secondly, for buying us back. It's only right that we surrender back to him our lives. It's only right that we choose to live in a way that is consistent with our new identities as the redeemed children of God. It's only right that we choose to live radically for his glory and his glory alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful and grateful for what you've done for us. Father, we thank you that out of your great love for us, you would send your son, Jesus, to die on the cross. Father, I pray that this truth would not just be head knowledge today, but really play out in our lives. I pray that it would motivate us to, to live the way that you want us to live. Father, I believe that you're challenging me and, and us here to live radically for you. God, I don't know uh, what that might look like for all of us. And God, uh, if, if I'm honest, I don't even know what that might look like for me. Uh, but God, we are willing. We want you to be the master of our lives. And Father, we thank you that you've made a way that, that can happen. We thank you that if we profess you as our Lord and Savior, that we can now live with you. Father, I pray that today we would be different. I pray that this Christmas we would be different. I pray that we would care so much more about you and your kingdom than about our own little lives. Father, I pray that we as a church would rise up and, and decide to be counted for you. Father, I pray that we would not shrink back in fear or or anything of ourselves would stop us from living fully for you. Lord, I pray that we be bold in sharing you with our friends, that we be so moved and on fire for, for you that nothing would hold us back from sharing with others, that we would have this fire in our bones to proclaim you our Redeemer to those around us. Lord, I pray really that this Christmas would, as Chris said earlier, that not be just about time off, about presents or being with friends. I pray that it really would be about the birth of your son, Jesus. I pray as we ponder and as we think about him and adore and worship him, that we would live radically different lives. Lord, I pray for those of us who are struggling with sin and temptation. I pray that we will get a good grasp of who you've made us to be. I pray that we would understand the freedom that you've paid, that you've bought us, uh, that, that we might live holy and pure for you, that we'd see you for who you really are, the God who is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who lives in unapproachable light, and that now that we are united with him because of what you've done, that we would live lives that reflect that, that we live lives that are consistent with who you've called us to be. 
Father, I pray that we be a church that's like the early church. That we be a church that truly would turn this world upside down. That, God, we will be so different, so radical, that people cannot help but come into contact with us and, and see that you are truly the Lord of our lives. Father, I pray that you'd help us to do this. Father, I thank you that we can pray to you and commit ourselves to you. I thank you that you can do immeasurably more than all we ask or even imagine. And that, God, that your desire is that we become all this and more, more so than we even desire ourselves. And so, Father, we commit ourselves to you now. We ask that you be with us and help us to do this. In Jesus' name, amen.